Growing up in a small town can be a really strange experience. And if you spend a lot of time in Loganville or in a town like Loganville, you know that. And I've, I've been here long enough now to where I remember Loganville being an even smaller town than it is now. And I know Lee remembers Loganville being an even smaller town than I can remember Loganville being. But small town life has a lot of really strange peculiarities to it. And one of those is just in the way that we have relationships. Because if you grow up in one place and it's a small place, you kind of know everybody. And out of that, of course, there are people that, that you know really well, that you're very deeply acquainted with. They're your friends. They feel like family. You know their mom and them. You know the whole crew. You know all their secrets. You know all their stuff. And you're lifelong friends. But then there's another group where it's people that you've known your whole life, but you don't really know them. You're more familiar with them than you do really know them. And I've really become aware of this over the past couple of weeks because really within about a seven-day period, there were two guys who I grew up with, who I graduated with, who died quickly and suddenly. And, and it was kind of a big deal. And so everybody that, that we're still in contact with was talking about it. And these were guys who I'm pretty sure if you were to take my kindergarten yearbook and open it up, you could find all three of us. That we went to school together, we graduated together, we had classes together, went on field trips together. And so if you ask me if I know them, I certainly know them and I've known them my whole life. But if you ask me if I know them, I don't really. I don't know much about them. I certainly don't know much about who they've been over the past 13 years. But I didn't really have a deep connection with them when we were growing up together. We knew each other. We were, we were acquainted with each other. We were familiar with each other. But we didn't have that deep relationship. A similar thing happens on a bigger scale for people growing up in the South when it comes to Christianity. Flannery O'Connor once said that the South, while it's not Christ-centered, is certainly Christ-haunted. And so everywhere you go in the South, even in 2017, there's, there's a, a hanging cloud of Christendom over the South. The language is there. People understand the stories. Most people have at least some kind of contact with something that sounds or feels Christian. It's part of our DNA. It's part of our makeup. And so if you told somebody that you had a week that made you feel like Job, somebody probably would understand what's going on. If you made a David and Goliath comment, then they'll get it. They'll probably connect with that. If you talk about Abraham and Isaac, they know the stories because, again, their grandmother might have had a picture on the wall or a family Bible or might have spent time in VBS when they were growing up or there's some kind of connection and familiarity with it. But a lot of times it doesn't go much deeper than familiarity. We tend to be a people who know about God, but not people who know God. We know about Scripture, and we know about the stories in the Bible, but sometimes we don't know the depth of the Bible and what it means and what it has to say. And so when we talk about the book of Jonah, as we're going to be looking at it through the next several weeks, if you were to talk about Jonah, if you were to mention the name Jonah almost anywhere you could go here, I feel very confident that somewhere between 90 and 95% of the people that you said that name to would immediately have some concept of the story of Jonah. Chances are it's probably a picture of a cartoon guy and a cartoon fish eating him, but it's some kind of understanding of what happens in the story of Jonah. And I think there's a good chance, too, that there's a pretty large percentage of people inside of the churches where that might be the depth of where our knowledge ends. 
Then we know that it's a story about a guy who was a prophet, and there was some kind of big fish, and it's kind of weird, and there was Nineveh, and that's a really hard thing to say, and there's Tarshish, and that's a really hard thing to say, and the more that I say Tarshish over the next seven weeks, it's going to get weird, and it just gets stuck in your mouth. And so we know some of those things, but do we really know the meaning and the purpose behind the book of Jonah? That's what we're going to be doing over the next several weeks. We're going to be looking quickly, because we're going to take the whole book in, in just about a month and a half, but we're going to be looking at the message of Jonah, and the meaning of Jonah, and the importance of Jonah, and, and not just what he did, but the importance of the entire story in this big narrative of Scripture. And so to do that, so that we're not just familiar with Jonah, we're going to look for the next two weeks at the background of Jonah. Today we're going to talk about the setting that Jonah finds himself in. So we're not going to look at the book of Jonah. We're actually going to jump into 2 Kings chapter 14, verse 23 through 28 to see what's going on around Jonah and the setting that we find all of these events taking place in. And then next week we're going to talk about some of the themes and some of the motifs and some of the things that we should be looking out for as we dig into the book of Jonah to help not just look at the story, but to look at the story behind the story and how ultimately this points us to Christ and the goodness of the gospel. And so this morning we will be in 2 Kings chapter 14, verse 23 through 28. It says, In the 15th year, of Amaziah, the son of Joash, king of Judah, Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, began to reign in Samaria. And he reigned 41 years, and he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He did not depart from all the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, which made Israel to sin. He restored the border of Israel to Lebo Hamath, as far as the sea of Arabah, according to the word of the Lord, the God of Israel, which spoke to his servant Jonah the son of Amittai, the prophet who is from Gath-hefer. For the Lord saw the affliction of Israel was very bitter, for there was none left, bond or free. There was none to help Israel. But the Lord had not said that he would blot out the name of Israel from under heaven. And so he saved them by the hand of Jeroboam, the son of Joash. Now the rest of the acts of Jeroboam and all that he did and his might, how he fought, and how he restored Damascus and Hamath to Judah and in Israel, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Israel? And Jeroboam slept with his fathers, the kings of Israel, and Zechariah his son reigned in his place. May God add his blessing and his favor to the reading of his word. Thanks be to God for his word. Father God, we thank you for your word and all of your word. The, the stories and the messages that are easy to see and some that are more difficult. And God, it could be really easy just to reduce the story of Jonah down to a moral tale about not running away from you. And while that's certainly there, there's also something so much deeper as we see the work of Christ being portrayed there. A hint and a whisper of what Jesus would come to do once and for all. We see your compassion and your mercy and your grace and your goodness and even your sovereignty in every page of the book of Jonah. And so as we study this book, as we look through these words written so long ago, we ask that you would teach us and illuminate it through your Holy Spirit, that it would draw us closer to you, God, that we would be warned where we need to be warned and we would be encouraged where we need to be encouraged. And so as we talk about the history and the background and the setting and some of the details of the book of Jonah, God, help us to not 
take this this morning as a history lesson, but as a picture of your design and your goodness and your creativity as you set the stage for something incredible to take place. And we ask all these things in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. So let's talk about the background of the book of Jonah. And there's two key players inside of Jonah. You have Jonah, who was a prophet of the kingdom of Israel, and then you have Nineveh, which was a city in Assyria. And so we're going to talk about both of those places, but let's start with Israel. Because Israel is obviously a really big deal in the Old Testament. Israel is the key player from Genesis to Malachi because Israel is the people that God is going to bring about his salvation to the world through Christ. And so every story, good or bad, has some sort of focus on Israel. Now last time we were talking about Israel in the Old Testament, we were going through the book of Joshua. And the book of Joshua picks the story up where Moses leaves off. And so God's people are in the wilderness, and Joshua takes over, and God, through Joshua, leads the people through the wilderness to conquest after conquest after conquest, until finally they find themselves in the promised land. And it's good, and it's incredible, and it's everything that they had been hoping for for hundreds of years. But then there's a a season that we call the Judges period in Scripture. The book of Judges outlines all that happens here, and there's a lot of ups and downs that go through the book of Judges where the people sin and God has to rescue them, and it's this dramatic, kind of strange book. And then that leads us to a point where the Hebrew people go from being a a group of wanderers and conquest-focused people to setting up camp in the Promised Land and establishing a kingdom. We see the people anoint Saul, the first king of Israel, and all of a sudden they're a nation. All of a sudden they're a place. And Saul rules, and and sometimes he does well, sometimes he does poorly, but Israel starts to grow and starts to increase their power and their influence and their prestige. And then David takes over the reins from Saul, and King David is a man after God's own heart. He's flawed, but he's good, and he seeks after God, and he pursues after God in almost everything that he does, and he sees incredible prosperity. And they build this palace for the king to rest in, and the city starts to grow, and their wealth starts to increase. And then comes David's son Solomon, who is is wise and prudent, and he again sees the kingdom start to grow and expand. They build a temple for God where the people can come to worship, and everything is going really well. But unfortunately, in part because of Solomon's sins, some outside influence begins to come into Israel, and they start looking towards other gods. They start worshiping other gods, and there start to be seeds of deceit that are sown in the middle of this kingdom. And now just a couple generations after Saul, the kingdom splits in two. There's civil war, there's civil unrest, and all of a sudden the kingdom of Israel is divided. And so now you have two separate kingdoms with two separate kings, and to the north you have the kingdom of Israel, and to the south you have the kingdom of Judah. Now for the rest of our talk, we're not going to look at Judah. For the rest of this series, we're going to be focusing in on Israel, because that's where Jonah was a prophet. He was a prophet in the northern kingdom, and the northern kingdom was a giant mess, So with Judah, you had some ups and downs. You had some kings who were good kings, who honored God and worshipped God. You had some kings that were bad kings. And with each of these kings, the people would kind of follow and do what the king did. 
In the northern kingdom, in Israel, however, it was just bad king after bad king after bad king. And when you look through the lineage of the kings of Israel, it's Jeroboam was the first, and he was evil and did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And then the next guy was evil and did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And the next guy was evil and did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And the people followed the example of their kings. And so Israel was in this constant decline and this constant mess of being stuck in the middle of their sin until ultimately they found themselves in a really dangerous situation. They were being oppressed and surrounded by the Syrian people, and it didn't look good. It looked like the nation of Israel was about to be wiped off the face of the planet. But in 2 Kings chapter 13, we see a little bit of provision from God. In chapter 13, verse 3 through 5. It says, And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he gave them continually into the hand of Hazael, the king of Syria, and into Ben-Hadad, the son of Hazael. Then Jehoahaz sought the favor of the Lord, and the Lord listened to him, for he saw the oppression of Israel and how the king of Syria oppressed them. Therefore the Lord gave Israel a savior, that they escaped the hand of the Syrians, and the people of Israel had lived in their homes as formerly. Then verse 6 says this, Nevertheless, they did not depart from their sins of the house of Jeroboam, which he made Israel to sin, but they walked in them, from Ash- and the Asherah also remained in Samaria. And so under King Jehoahaz, who was an evil king and did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and had a really terrible name, and that's probably, if I can help it, the last time I'm going to say it, he was leading the people in this constant battle with sin. They were just going deeper and deeper and deeper into their sin and into their evil ways. And so because of that, the Syrian people, God sent them to oppress Israel and to punish Israel. But then this king cries out to God, and God has mercy and has compassion on his people, even though they're rebellious, even though they're sinful, even though they don't care anything about him. And so he sends a savior. And most historians and and biblical scholars believe that this was King Adad-Nerari III of Assyria. And that is a good name. It's still a hard name to say, but that is a great name. And if I was going to be a king, I would be Adad-Nerari IV because that's a powerful name. And so this guy comes in and he rescues Israel from Syria. And he takes away their oppression. And so the Assyrian king, God uses him to come in and bring deliverance for his people because God has compassion on his people even when they're sinful. And then something amazing starts to happen. Because as we saw in that passage, that didn't change anything. They still had the Asherah poles, these idols, lining their streets and going to worship these other gods. And they didn't turn away from their sin, but they continually fell into that same trap And King Joash took over, and he also did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and continued that same pattern. But instead of Israel falling into disrepair, instead of Israel falling into oppression, they start to flourish. And Joash helps Israel increase their borders and increase their boundaries and increase their wealth and their fame. And then his son, Jeroboam II, takes over. And just like his father and his grandfather, and just like his namesake, Jeroboam I, Jeroboam II continued to live in sin. And he continued to do what was evil in the sight of God. And so all the people continued to do what was evil in the sight of God. And then again, they continued to grow. And they continued to increase. 
And that's where we find this passage of scripture that shows us that just like God prophesied through Jonah, they were having this prosperity even though they were sinning and even though they were rebelling against God. And it was something that God was allowing to happen. Now, as we look at the book of Jonah, we're going to find that the book of Jonah contains in it a lot of warnings about how we should not conduct ourselves as God's people. But even in the lead into Jonah, Even in the setting of Jonah, there's a very important warning that we need to notice. Because the people of Israel were thriving, they were prospering, everything was going as as good as it possibly could for them, even though they were wrecked in sin. And what can happen a lot of times is if things are going really badly, right? If, If we find ourselves at rock bottom like Jehoahaz did, We can look around and say, oh my goodness, we're under oppression and my life is falling apart and things aren't going the way that they should. There must be a problem. Something must be wrong. And so like Jehoahaz, in our moments of weakness, when we fall to rock bottom, we can come to God and say, I need you and I'm broken and I need your grace and your mercy. Help me. But when things are going well, when our borders are increasing, when we're healthy, wealthy and wise, then we can start to look around and think, you know what? things are going pretty well. Either I'm doing a really good job and just managing things on my own, or God must think I'm pretty awesome. And because of that, he's given me all these blessings and all these affirmations of what I'm doing. And Israel probably felt that way. It was leading them towards hardness and stubbornness because everything was going good. Why would they want to change anything? Why would they want to stop worshiping these other gods? Because everything was going exactly like they wanted to. But there was danger on the horizon. So during this entire period, Israel was doing what was sinful in the eyes of God, and they were growing and having this material and social prosperity. But then, as they're going through this, all the prophets are coming along and saying, Guys, this isn't the way we're supposed to live. This isn't who we're supposed to be. We're supposed to be worshiping God. Cast down your idols. Take away all this sinfulness. Don't turn to all these other gods. Turn back to God and he'll save you. But if not, there's something coming on the horizon that you're not going to enjoy. We are in trouble here. And the people would turn their back from the prophets. They wouldn't listen. They would kill the prophets. They would persecute the prophets because they thought, no, there's no way there's anything bad coming because look how good everything is. And then a few generations later, Assyria, that same nation that once rescued Israel, now comes back to Israel, but not for salvation, but for conquest. And within a few generations of what takes place here in the book of Jonah, the northern kingdom of Israel is taken into captivity and taken into exile, and nothing ever is the way that it was again. But for right now, for our story's purpose, We find Israel in a very good place materially, in a very bad place spiritually. But now what about Assyria? Because there's two parts of the story. There's the city of Nineveh, and then there's Jonah. And Nineveh was part of this nation called Assyria, and it's a very old nation. In fact, one of the incredible things about Assyria is before we ever see the name of Israel, or even the name of the Hebrew people, in Scripture we see Assyria. As early as Genesis chapter 2, we see Assyria mentioned. And the city of Nineveh, which is the city that the story of Jonah focuses in on, is again a very old city and one that has a big importance in the history of God's people. Because the city of Nineveh was built by this guy named Nimrod, 
who that used to be a good word. I think like, it, he, it seems to be a really th- good thing that his name is Nimrod because he's a hunter and he's mighty and he's valiant, but now we just think of dummies. And so I don't know how that changed, but it did. And so Nimrod, this brave, mighty hunter, was the great-grandson of Noah. And he comes in, and with all of his power and prestige and influence, he builds the city of Nineveh. And so in Genesis chapter 10, again, before we see Jerusalem or Jericho, we see Nineveh. And so it's a really important place with a lot of history and a lot of prestige. But while Israel seemed to be regaining their strength during this time, leading up to the book of Jonah, Assyria was having a really bad couple years a really bad generation, really. Because when the king comes in to fight the Syrians, that, that ties them up in that conflict with Syria. And then Assyria starts another fight with another group of people. And so they're fighting a battle on two fronts. And if you're a, a military historian, that usually doesn't bode very well for you. Because military expeditions are expensive. They cost money, they cost resources, and they cost people. And so there's all of this external conflict going on with Assyria, and so they're stretched really thin. And then in the middle of that, there's a widespread famine. There's no food, there's not a lot to drink. And so you're doing these two very expensive battles. You're having to supply your soldiers and your military and all this kind of stuff, but then also you have to feed your people at home, and there's not enough to go around. And so people can be poor now. People are hungry, people are sick, people are dying at war, people are not feeling good about their situation. And so not only are they physically hurting, but morale can start to drop. And what happens when that takes place, when your people are hungry, when your people are fighting, when your people are cash-strapped, all of a sudden people can start to not just look at their enemies on the outside, but start to turn on each other internally. And so in Assyria, we start to see a lot of division and conflict inside of the nation of Assyria itself. And this once powerful place starts to decentralize. And all of a sudden, some of the big important cities in Assyria start to try to take for themselves and become their own entity and start to fight with one another. And we see evidence of that even in the book of Jonah. Because as we get into the the story of Jonah, we find Nineveh repenting. And if that's a spoiler, I'm very sorry. But Nineveh, Nineveh repents. And when they do, that edict comes down from someone who's called the king of Nineveh, which is a strange term. It doesn't say the king of Assyria. It says the king of Nineveh, the king of this city. And it shows us exactly what was happening politically and socially in the life of Nineveh. The whole thing was decentralizing and starting to fall apart. And so you've got war, you've got famine, you've got inner conflict, and then in the middle of all of that, there's this strange big eclipse, and because these ancient pagan people would look for signs from the stars, when there was an eclipse, it would be a really big deal, and they were trying to figure out what all of this means. We're at war, we're hungry, we're fighting with each other, and now the sky is doing something strange. What does it all mean? And so we find a tale of two very different places when we look at Israel and Assyria. Because Israel's path was leading them out of their prosperity to a road that was full of hardened hearts and exile. While Nineveh and Assyria was a place that was ready for reform and ready for repentance. And it's amazing how we see God move and put the details together. 
And as we look next week, we're going to talk about how God's sovereignty is one of the themes of the book of Jonah and how we see God use the physical world to accomplish his spiritual purposes. And when God does something, it's never random and it's never on accident, but he always sets the stage exactly like he should. And so in this story of Nineveh's salvation, we see a small picture of what God does through Christ. Because just like he set the pieces, just like they needed to be for Nineveh to be ready to repent and ready to reform, we know that Paul said that in the fullness of time, God sent forth his son. That God had put the world together in the exact right way, in the exact right place, so that when Jesus came into the world as a child and started his ministry, the world was ready in a way that it had never been before. The people of Israel had been in captivity, not just to the Assyrians, but also to the Babylonians, then to the Persians, then to the Greeks, and then to the Romans. Just centuries of being stuck in somebody else's land, or even worse, they spent time in their own land as exiles and captives under somebody else's authority and somebody else's government, and they were ready and desperate for God to send his Messiah into the world and to save them. The Greeks gave the world a universal language in a way that had never been done before. The Romans built roads so that people could get almost anywhere that you wanted to go. It was an incredibly unique point in time in the world's history that God set all of the pieces just right so that Jesus could come in and bring the gospel, bring the message of salvation to the world. And so we see that, that whisper, we see that narrative in the story of Jonah as God is, is allowing his people to go into their own hardness. But he's using all the things that take place in the life of Assyria, things that seem to be horrible and awful and bad, and he's setting the stage for them to have this amazing moment of repentance and confession and worshiping God. And it's an incredibly beautiful picture of God's compassion and mercy. And so that's the setting that we're going to find the book of Jonah resting in. It's that setting that God goes to this prophet in Israel and sends him off into a foreign land couple more quick things about the book of Jonah. The events of the story took place between 782 and 753 BC. That was the time when King Jeroboam II was reigning. That's probably not when the book was written. If you're one of these people that like to know who and why the book was written, we don't really know who. Chances are it wasn't Jonah. Because if it was Jonah, Jonah would not only be the world's most stubborn prophet, but he would also be the world's most self-aware and honest human being that's ever lived. Because this is not a positive book for Jonah. This is not one of those stories where you come away at the end of it thinking, that Jonah, he's a swell guy. It gets worse and worse as the story goes. We will grow to dislike Jonah together because he whines and he complains and he hates people and he wants God to destroy an entire city. And it's usually on my criteria of people that I like that city destroyer is usually not on there. So I'm not, I'm not, I'm not for people who are for the destruction of, of a whole city worth of people. And so Jonah is not, this is not a flattering picture of this prophet. And so Jonah didn't write the book of Jonah. Of course, he probably contributed to some of the story. And, and of course, he would have told people about his story and everything that took place as a prophet. That was part of his job. But the book of Jonah was probably written sometime between the time that Jonah lived in the mid-700 B.C.s all the way to about the 3rd century B.C. So it's a pretty big span that this book could have been written in. And so while we don't know necessarily who wrote the book of Jonah or exactly when it was written, we do know how it was written. And one of the things that's really important about 
studying scripture, particularly in the Old Testament, is to understand the format and the formula and the genre of the book that we're looking at. And what's amazing about the the Hebrew literature is even historical stories like the book of Jonah are often written in a way and structured in a way that help teach us something, not only in the words that it says, but in the format that the book is written. And so when you think about Genesis chapter 1, there's poetry in Genesis chapter 1. There's prose in Genesis chapter 1. It's, it's a beautiful, artistic language. And it shows us God creating the heavens and the earth in a very creative language, in a very creative form. In the book of Lamentations. Lamentations is, is a harsh and difficult book where God's people are crying out because they're being oppressed and everything that the prophets said was coming true and they find themselves desperately reaching out to God and feeling like they're dying. And the book of Lamentations is written like a funeral dirge or a funeral song. And so when they're reading this book and they're seeing this emotion, they also are very familiar with the kind of language. And so as they were reciting this and reading this, they would also be thinking, like, we're dying. This is, this is our funeral story. This is our death. This is our obituary, because that's the form and the formula that the author used to write the book of Lamentations. The book of Jonah is, is a paralleled story. And so if we were to cut the book in half and have chapter 1 and 2 on this side and chapter 3 and 4 on this side and draw that picture out, because I think in pictures, the pictures would look very similar. And so chapter 1 starts with Jonah's calling. It says, God called Jonah, the son of Amittai, to go to Nineveh. And then Jonah steps out, and he leaves. And he runs towards Tarshish, and he runs away from the call of God. And as he's doing that, Jonah meets a group of, of pagan people worshiping other gods. And because of God using Jonah, even in the midst of his rebellion, those pagan people end up worshiping the one true God. And then Jonah's thrown out into the sea, and he has this this moment of pity for himself and this moment of confession in chapter 2 where Jonah cries out to God and whines a little bit about his current state. And then you get to chapter 3, and the language is almost the exact same. It says, and then a second time, God called Jonah, the son of Amittai, the prophet, to go to Nineveh. And this time, in this parallel story, Jonah thinks, you know what? I'm going to go to Nineveh. And so this time he heads out to Nineveh because running away didn't work so well for him the last time. And so he goes to Nineveh and he starts preaching this message, not expecting anything to happen. And all of a sudden, this pagan city, as a part of this pagan nation, turns away from their gods and starts worshiping the one true God. And so you have a call to Jonah. You have Jonah in the midst of pagans who begin to worship the one true God. And then you get Jonah whining again. And Jonah starts to cry out for God to destroy the whole thing, and he pitches this little fit and has a pity party for himself, and is angry. He's as even angry to the point of death about how God is providing for these people. And so the story just doubles over on itself. And in both cases, we're reminded of God's mercy and compassion to those who repent and those to call on him no matter who you are, no matter where you've come from, no matter what you've done. In the Hebrew world, they would use these parallels to show importance. When you would say things multiple times, it was like adding an exclamation point to things. And if you look through the Psalms, you see this in the poetic language where they would say things once and then say it again in another way. So the Lord is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. This reiteration of the same thing, and it shows importance and it shows beauty. 
And so as we approach the book of Jonah, it can be very easy to just look at it like a Sunday school story where we just need to know most of the big facts and then move on. But the reality is even the the way that this book is written is designed to grab our attention and show us that this matters, that this story is important, that this story has depth, that this story teaches us theology about who God is and what God does, that this story points us to Jesus. And we even see Jesus using the story of Jonah and the language of Jonah to describe his own work and his own ministry and bringing salvation to the world. And so we can't dismiss this book as just a strange little book that we might have heard when we were five, six, or seven years old. This is the inspired word of God that he gave to us for teaching and for proof and for all these things that are so beneficial for us and ultimately to lead us towards salvation. And so this book matters. This book is important. And so even if you've heard this story a thousand times before, let's do our best to hear this story like it's the very first time and to seek after a clear picture of who God is and how God works and what that means for us. To learn from the example not only of Jonah and learn what not to do, but also to learn from the example of the people of Nineveh who abandoned their foreign gods and trusted and and worshipped the one true God and repented of all their junk. And let's find the road from the book of Jonah that leads us to the foot of the cross, that leads us to Christ and the good news of the gospel, because everything from Genesis to Malachi points us towards Christ, and everything from Matthew to Revelation points us back to Christ, because the whole thing in every page of Scripture is about Jesus. So thank you for sticking with me through the historical background and the context, but I think it's important, and I think that it matters And so now with this setting and with this foundation in place, next week we'll look at the themes of the book of Jonah, the things that we need to be looking for, the lens that we need to look at the book through, and then we're going to dive in and talk about this narrative of a prophet who ran away from God trying to get out of God's presence and is constantly moving in the rhythms of God's grace, seeing salvation and and good news coming to, to a lost and a broken world.